uh, Revelation chapter 21. Next to the last chapter of the New Testament, actually of the whole Bible. Revelation chapter 21. It's kind of the beginning of a, of a new section, isn't it? Uh, we've seen all the conflict. First, we started off looking at the seven churches in Asia Minor. Uh, and we saw there that Christ had a word for them and called them to victory. Seven times, he says, gives a promise to the one who overcomes, the one who conquers. And then we began to see the unfolding, or unrolling, you might say, of the scroll that was given to the Lamb, and how the seals were opened, and all kinds of things started happening. And it seems it's a picture of, from the time that the Revelation was given, I believe, in the late first century, as history progresses and things happen, we see the rise of this monster, the one comes out of the sea, the other comes out of the earth. We see this strange individual or character or whatever it is of the, the beast. And then we see the, the false prophet. Uh, there's the second beast later. I think he's, that's the one called the false prophet. And we see this great conflict uh, between this power of evil and its fight against Christ and his church. But we see that monstrosity again and again defeated. Toward the end, we see it pictured uh, in the form of a, a the, the harlot of Babylon, the whore of Babylon, uh, robed in uh, royal garments, drunk with a chalice in her hand, a golden chalice, drunk with the blood of the saints and with a name full of blasphemies written all over her. And uh, generally identified as the apostate church, chiefly uh, found within the Church of Rome and its false system of sacramentalism, and its claim that the Pope is the head of the church, and you know they never recanted from that, never withdrawn that statement that unless you are in submission to the Bishop of Rome as the head of the church, you cannot be saved. Uh, they will recognize; they call them uh, separated brethren. But ultimately, according to them, their system, you have to partake of their sacraments and be in submission to the Bishop of Rome to be saved. And that's why the Reformers opposed that and said the Pope is more Antichrist than anything else, uh, claiming to be the replacement of Jesus. The word anti in Greek, uh, its chief meaning is not as in English, where anti means against something. It actually, in Greek, it means uh, over against something or in, in replacing it. And Christ does not need a replacement on earth. So we see this monstrosity church or whatever this thing is, we see it's destroyed. And then we see that there's a thousand year period of prosperity and blessing where the church is at peace and at rest finally. As we saw, there will still be sin in the world during the millennial period. There will still be death in the world. Uh, Isaiah 65 talks about a child dying at a hundred years. It's like, what does that mean? They keep their youth, really, until it's time to leave this life. Um, it said, but a sinner, being 100 years old, shall be accursed. So this period is described as being a time of prosperity and of peace and of rest to the church, that seventh millennium of history, where they, the church is at rest. But then we see 
that toward the end of that thousand year period, and that happens by the way because Satan will be bound and cast into the bottomless pit and put a chain on him, specifically saying so he cannot deceive the nations any longer. But at the end of the thousand years, he'll be let loose out of his prison and immediately goes out and gathers the nations off and say, in the outskirts of society or of civilization, gathers them together and it says their number was as the sand of the sea. They encircle the camp of the saints. Looks like they're just getting ready to destroy it because that's all Satan has ever wanted to do is wipe God's people from off of the face of this earth. But then fire comes down from heaven and we've noticed that, well, that's exactly the description it's given when Jesus returns on the last day in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those that know not God, according to Second Thessalonians chapter 1 and other passages. The Christ comes in judgment, and the wicked are then slain, and uh, that's brought to an end. The saints, as we read in First uh, Thessalonians 4, are caught up to be with the Lord, and then Christ returns. The great white throne judgment takes place. The dead are judged, and as we read at the end of uh, chapter 20, the very last verse, as they are judged, the books are, well, the books were opened, everyone is judged out of the books, it's at that judgment, according to their works, and so that's why it's the, it says, I saw the dead standing before God, and that judgment specifically, those that are unsaved are being judged. The saints have already been judged at Calvary, when their substitute went to hell for them on the cross, that's Jesus who died for us. But here this judgment takes place. The saints will be present there. Paul said that. Uh, but then the final verse says, And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. So we find this very serious warning given. Uh, and then chapter 21 opens. So things pass away. And then John, after all this tumult and all this war and all this uh, craziness in one sense coming from the unsaved, once it's dealt with completely, it's final. Satan has been thrown into the lake of fire. All the wicked have been cast into the lake of fire. Those that would oppose God, those who hate God and hate his people, they're dealt with. They're destroyed. They'll, they'll suffer for eternity, it says. The smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. All those that had received the mark of the beast, uh, that is, who gave their allegiance to Satan and to the kingdom of man, as Augustine said, so now chapter 21 opens. John speaks and says, Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Now what that looked like to John, I don't, I'm not sure. Okay, We see pictures of earth from outer space. And this, this present earth is beautiful. It's this beautiful blue, kind of greenish a little bit in some spots, but a few clouds and everything over it. it. The earth is a beautiful thing. But now he sees a new heaven, or it's a new earth and a new heaven. I just wonder what, what he saw. Well, I guess if we stick around by God's grace, we'll see it. Because this is our home. By the way, beloved, as we're going through John's talking about your home. That's why sometimes as Christians, we don't feel exactly like we're at home in this world. And that's because, as we often say, this world is not our home. You're a citizen of heaven. You belong to the new Jerusalem. We're going to see that in just a moment. So John sees this. This glorious vision now opens. We've seen all this tumult, pretty frightening things. The wicked being cast into the lake of fire, the lake of fire engulfing them, and then going into eternal torment with the devil, the beast, the false prophet, everything that opposed God. Death and Hades, we're told, death and hell, thrown into the lake of fire, pretty much identified with what Jesus speaks of in the Gospels as Gehenna, 
uh, the final abode of the dead where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Pretty scary stuff. Sobering stuff. Things that should make us stop and think and make sure of our salvation. Because there's only two destinies that humankind are going to be uh, at, and that is in heaven or in hell. So we want to make sure, as Peter said, make your calling and election sure. Don't presume on God's grace by living in sin and thinking, well, I'll be okay. I don't need to repent of whatever my favorite sin is. Don't fool yourself. But once that's all dealt with, John now, a new vision opens up. God shows him something else. And that's after all this conflict, here's where we've been heading. This is where Christ has been taking us. Remember what Jesus said? He said, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, he said, John chapter 14, I will come again and receive you to myself, so that where I am, there you may be with me. He's talking about this new heaven and new earth, ultimately. In my father's house are many mansions. And actually, the Greek can be translated their apartments. That was interesting. Some say it's like the apartments for the priests that were in the temple. You know, they had little rooms that they, when they came in, when they were on duty, they could stay there. And it was like a little houses that they could stay at. Um, Whatever we have in heaven is going to be eternal and it's going to be awesome and beautiful. Scripture says, I has not seen nor ear heard, neither has entered into the heart of man the things that God has prepared for those who love him. And Paul did say, but God has revealed those things to us. That is, he's beginning to reveal those things to us by his spirit. So we kind of have a foretaste and a little bit of knowledge about what the future holds. And it's going to be glorious, but I think we would all agree that as this world is actually full of the glory of God and there is a beauty in the creation that is amazing and awe-inspiring, this is a world marred with sin and death. The next world, the new heavens and the new earth, are going to be off the scale, beautiful. Everything is going to glorify God. As we see, because there's not going to be any death there. There's not going to be any sin there. Um, I think at times it's going to be pretty wonderful to be somewhere where there's never a mean word spoken. Once in a while we have to put up with a little bit of verbal abuse, okay? Uh, we want to make sure we're not the ones giving it out. But we're going to be in a place where every act is kind and loving and gentle and true. Every word spoken is going to be of the same nature, glorifying to God and edifying to his people. Again, there'll never be a harsh word spoken. There'll never be a mean act done. It's going to be glory. And that's for eternity. It's going to be awesome. And here's the nicest thing about heaven, as we describe here, the new heavens and the new earth. We're going to finally be where we're supposed to be. And by the sanctifying, saving power of Christ and the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Ultimately, we're going to finally be what we're supposed to be. Now we struggle, don't we? Now, you know, our spirits are regenerated, but our bodies have not yet been redeemed. So our bodies, we have the Holy Spirit in us, so there's never an excuse for sin. But we struggle against appetites, attitudes, lust, different foolishness of our own hearts. Okay, we have to put up with all this garbage. That's going to all be gone. We're going to be perfectly conformed to the image of God. Because God's not only making a new heaven and a new earth, he's making presently a people fit for this. That's us. That's the church. And it's all by, and let's say us, I'm not bragging here. It's all by grace. It's because of Jesus. We're a bunch of unworthy sinners. Okay? I was thinking as I was working on my sermons, like, who are we to talk about heaven? 
We're a bunch of rebels. You know, we love our sins so much, we get angry when people try to take it away from us. Okay, we're greedy, we're selfish, we're like dogs with a bone sometimes, the way we snap at each other and mistreat people. We're horrible people at a certain level, okay? Now, some of you are better than that, okay? I'm mainly talking about myself right now. But it's by God's grace. You can say, well, I don't do that. Well, that's by God's grace, okay? But who are we to talk about heaven? We have no right to talk about heaven, except by the blood of Jesus Christ we have hope. Because of who Jesus is, we can talk about this. Chapter 21 of Revelation wouldn't be there for the, the, the sections in the Gospels and that day in history when Christ died hadn't have happened and the, those Gospels hadn't have been written and tell us what occurred. Because of the Lord Jesus Christ, we can talk about this. So we can read chapter 21 now. We have a right to read it, not in and of ourselves, because, but it's been given to us as an inheritance given to us by grace, undeservedly on our part, but graciously by God's. That's why we have this hope. And if we remember that, then we can begin to rejoice. It's like, wow, God loves me this much? I deserve to burn in hell. Those people that got cast into the lake of fire, I deserve to be with them because my sins are worse than theirs because I've sinned against light often. But God said no. Christ stood for me. It says in, in uh, the scriptures that in Second Timothy, that grace was given to us in Christ Jesus literally before eternal times. Meaning before the creation began, Jesus Christ had already stood for us in God's eternal counsel as our Savior and Redeemer. God has a plan, and it was to redeem us and for him to be glorified in our lives. And we'll be praising him for all eternity. So we come to this chapter, and he sees this new heaven and this new earth, and it's beautiful. He says, the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And then he says, and there was no more sea. So John's opening vision of the new heavens and the new earth, it, this sets the tone for everything that follows after this in these next two chapters. As I say, John saw in vision what every saint longs for and will experience in his future. This is your future we're reading about now. Heaven with God and Christ forever in the new Jerusalem. John describes the church invisible, made up of all those redeemed by Jesus Christ, washed in his blood, made clean and sanctified by his Holy Spirit under the symbolism of a beautiful city. Because he says, I saw the new Jerusalem coming down from God. So let's read this section. We're going to just look at the first eight verses here. Um, I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain. For the former things have passed away. Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. He who overcomes shall inherit all things. And I will be his God, and he shall be my son. 
But the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Amen. We'll continue on here. Let's have a word of prayer real quick. Okay? Father, we ask you to bless us now. Open your word to us. And I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts would be acceptable in your sight. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Well, we've already opened with the, the first couple of verses here, but the first verse, there was no more sea, which is interesting because the sea you know, is a picture of the tumult, uh, the turning, uh, the uh, no rest. If you go to the ocean, it's beautiful. We love it. It's nice. It's, it can be very pacifying, calming. But if you're at the ocean, those waves never stop. It's continual. And the scripture actually likens that to the churning up of the, of the wicked. It says the wicked are like the raging sea, not a, not a calm, you know, waves coming in with a gentle zephyr blowing over you uh, from the cool ocean waters. But the wicked are like the raging sea that cannot rest, whose waters cast up mire and dirt. There is no peace, saith my God, to the wicked. Someone said this is part of the best way to explain this. There's, going, there's no sea. It doesn't say there's not going to be any water. It doesn't say there's not going to be any lakes. It just says there's not going to be an ocean, no sea. Okay, Thalatsa is the Greek word there. Uh, there's not going to be, a, the sea will not be there anymore. One of the things, it means all the water will be drinkable. <laughs> okay, uh, you can't drink seawater. Well, you can, but it'll kill you if you do it. So don't do that, all right? You can't drink a lot of it, all right? Um, but there's no more sea, so there's no more of this churning the picture of what that represented it sometimes is gone. It's just a place of peace. It's going to be awesome. It's going to be beautiful. Then John sees the, the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. So a little bit of a mixed metaphor here because you have a beautiful city. And then John says, yeah, it was so beautiful. It was like a bride that was adorned for her husband. And you have to understand first century Middle East weddings, okay? Uh, you know, the white gown and the veil, that kind of comes from that a little bit, the veil in particular. But brides were just adorned with jewels and gold. You just read how the, you know, the, the, the queen's garments were interwoven with gold thread. It's just absolutely beautiful. And this is what John is likening them to. He said, it's like a bride that's been prepared for her husband. And you think about that while well, she's prepared, because she's totally in love with her husband. Her husband's totally in love with her, and her, their wedding day has arrived. You know, the Bible celebrates marriage and weddings. It's, it's great things, and having a family and all that. So he sees this new Jerusalem coming down. It's absolutely breathtakingly beautiful. That's our home. That's where we're going in the new heavens and the new earth. He sees this. And he says, I heard a voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with me. That's the, you know, the tabernacle in the mosaic times, the tent, it's with men. And it says, and he will dwell with him. It just said the tabernacle. Well, remember when Jesus, when they asked for a sign, he said, destroy this tabernacle, and in three days I'll raise it up. And they said, it's been 48 years, I think, or 46 years. Well, this temple's been building, and you're going to raise it up in one day. And then John adds, he was speaking about his body. So it's interesting that Christ likened his body to a tent, to a tabernacle. Peter says the same thing in, in 2 Peter. He said, I must soon put off this tabernacle. 
meaning his physical body. What this is saying is Jesus is going to be there. He's the reason that heaven is heaven. Because he's the son of God. He's also the son of man. And he's going to be with us throughout eternity. God will, he will dwell with them and shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. So the fellowship, the intimacy, the friendship, the love, it's going to be beyond anything we've ever experienced. You know, sometimes people wonder, like, well, I'm going to, my favorite hobby here or something, you know, uh, that maybe it's not going to be there. I guarantee you, God knows how to make you happy. The things you have in your life right now that bring you joy, whatever it is, that's from God, assuming it's a legitimate thing, okay? Uh, and if it's not, you need to get rid of it. But if you have things like, well, I really enjoy, enjoy you know, sometimes sewing, I really enjoy, uh, you know, uh, hunting and stuff like that, well, maybe that's not going to be there because there's no death in the new heavens and the new sewing. Who made that a joy for you? God did. The things he has waiting for you are so beyond anything you've experienced right now. You're not going to miss anything you're doing now. Okay? Uh, it's like when I was a little boy, I, I had Lincoln Logs and I had toy trucks. I was quite the road builder. Okay, You Caltrans guys had nothing on me, man. Okay? Um, and then I had tanks, and I fought a lot of wars in the backyard, okay, and, and generally won, okay. We kicked the Nazis' tails multiple times, okay, in my backyard, because I grew up in the 50s and heard a lot of stories from young veterans of World War II at that time. I don't do that now, okay. <laughs> made it sound pretty good just for a second ago. I thought, hmm, maybe I'll go buy some toys. But no, you don't do that now. You got gross stuff, Okay. What we have here in this life, it's great. God gives us all things richly to enjoy, it says in Scripture. But we'll be able to let go of it. We'll be like Paul. When I was a child, I thought as a child. I understood as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. And so we're going to find out the pleasures and the joy of holiness, righteousness, of fellowship with God throughout all eternity. You think God has some adventures for you in this life? I have no idea what kind of adventures await us but it's going to be awesome. Okay? So we can trust him for that. God himself will be with them and be their God. God is infinite in his being. He's infinite in his wisdom, his knowledge, his understanding, his love. Everything about him, you can never get to the end of it. He knows he's an awesome being, okay? And that's why he created you. He's willing to share his communicable attributes with you and for you to know him. And he also understood that you're going to need eternity to begin to know him. That's why Jesus is so awesome. He knows the Father 100%. Because Jesus is God. He's the Son of God. And the Holy Spirit also. And the Father. God's infinite. So throughout, you think, well, aren't we going to get bored? No, you're never going to get bored. Okay? You're going to, it's going to be awesome. God will be with you. And our I believe our capacity to receive knowledge will continue to increase. And it's just going to be wonderful. God's made us to know him. Jesus actually defined eternal life in John 17.3. And he said, and look it up. Get your Bibles open if you want to. John 17.3. If you don't have this memorized, you should. He said, and this is eternal life, or this is life eternal, that they might know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Wait a minute. I thought eternal life meant you take time and knock the end out of it and you live forever, right? That's eternal life. Well, it is. That's a definition. But that's not how Christ defined it. Jesus said eternal life is to know God. Okay, you've got life there. You've got eternity. 
You've got knowing God. So it's going to be awesome. Okay? Because our knowledge even now, our true knowledge, comes from the one who knows everything about everything. And when God communicates knowledge to us, when we have our Bibles, you know, well, we may not know everything about everything. But the knowledge we have in the Word of God that God lets us read and take into our hearts by the work of His Spirit, it's true knowledge. Because, you know, there is a saying in philosophy, so, you know, technically... Unless you know everything about everything, we're talking about everything in the universe, and everything in relationship to everything, the big and the small and everything in between, you really can't authoritatively say you know anything. Because there might be something out there that's going to contradict what you think is true. We've seen this in science. You know, uh, Galileo got in trouble because he said the Earth... You know, there was orbiting planets and the Earth was round. And it was like that flew in the face of, uh, you know, the dogmatics of the, the medieval church at that time. Well, we now know he, he was right. You know, things were found out that contradicted, you know, the, the flat Earth theory. If you're flat Earth, I'll talk to you later, okay? But the, the Earth's a globe, okay? I'm pretty clear on that. So, but the point is that, that we find out things. We learn. We go from lesser knowledge to greater. And we wonder, well, our scientific knowledge, some of the things we're doing, how healthy is it? You know, one of the problems in Rome was that uh, a lot of people in Rome died because they were coating wine jugs with lead inside. They thought, hey, great idea. Look, we can put a metal coating on the inside. The wine won't link out. And look how easy it is to coat it with lead. So they did that, and for a period of time, it wiped out a whole bunch of people from lead poisoning. Finally, somebody figured it out, and they quit doing that. You know, and now we say, oh, well, we would never be so foolish. And really, because you ever heard of asbestos? They were about ready to put it into toothpaste back about, you know, about 50 years ago. And I've seen, you know, some of the commercials and stuff promoting it. It was in, it was in floor tile. It was in paint. It was in just about everything. And we now know, man, that stuff is deadly. Okay. Uh, and other things like this. So it's like, oh, wait a minute. We're so much smarter. Eh, well, Okay. We go from lesser knowledge to greater knowledge. So, and we have to learn by experimentation on some of these things. But when we have God's Word and we understand it correctly, well, I don't know everything about everything and everything in relationship to everything. But I know someone who does. His name is the Lord God Almighty. So when he says something, and if I understand it correctly and I pray for his help, in context, it's true. Because it comes, even though my knowledge is limited, I get my facts, my data, and the interpretation of that data from the one who actually does know everything about everything and everything in relationship to everything because he ordained those things to be and he ordained all those relationships to each other. He created it. So, of course, he knows it. So when he speaks and tells us, don't do certain things, and we're like, well, I gets in the way of what I want to do. I would suggest you do what God says. When he says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you have everlasting life. You shall be saved in your family. Believe what he says. Say, well, but my experience, I don't care about your experience at that point. God's promises are clear. And when he promises something, repent and live. Repent and believe. You can be sure that's the truth. Here we're reading about a new heavens and a new earth. Other than the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the fact that we're born again by God's grace, 
There's no physical evidence that this is going to happen. But by the resurrection of Jesus, the new creation has already been inaugurated. Christ is risen, never to die again. Wait a minute, we're talking about a new heavens and a new earth where there's no death. Yeah. Jesus has already inaugurated the new creation. His physical body is part of the new creation. That is his humanity. So when God says this is going to happen, yes, it already has happened. And when we're born again spiritually, if any man be in Christ, what is he? New creation. Oh, wait a minute, we're just reading about a new creation here, aren't we? Yes. So when you're born again, you're part of that. That's your home now. That's where you belong. So we have this beautiful hope given to us, this promise, by the one who not just knows everything, but who's in control of everything. When God says there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth, and he shows it to John, the reason why is because there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. This right now is going to pass away. And so remember that as you're building your life. What you do now does count. If you've got a job, work hard. you got a business, build it up. Okay? Uh, you've got friendships, be faithful and loyal. You're married, love your spouse and be faithful. Okay? If you're a child, obey your parents in the Lord. Do all things pleasing to God. All right? Why? Because it counts. It matters. What you do in this life does matter. But this is not your home. We're passing through. We're passengers on a ship. You know, like the pilgrims when they, they left Holland to, to come to the new world. We're basically on the boat. We haven't got to the new world yet, but we will because our captain is Jesus and he knows how to get us there. He's promised to do that and we can trust him. So we have this wonderful promise. So there's no sea. So John sees the new heavens and the new earth. In Hebrews 12, we read in verse 22, but you are come unto the Mount Zion. It's talking about right now as believers. You've come to the Mount Zion, the to the city of the living God, the celestial Jerusalem, or the heavenly Jerusalem, to the, and to the company of innumerable angels, and to the congregation of the firstborn. Now, that's plural there. It's the firstborn ones, okay? God's people, you have that right. Firstborn have the right of inheritance. That's, what, that's why it says the, the church of the firstborn. Which are written in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect. That is, when you go to the Lord, you're, you're the court to heaven when you pray, because the Holy Spirit knows no distance and separation. He's in heaven, and Paul, or the writer of Hebrews, maybe Paul, is saying, this is who you have to deal with. This is who you, who you are coming to. You're coming to the Lord, but this is where our fellowship and our future lies. Because uh, when you die from this and you pass from this life, your spirit is perfected in the presence of God. So that's why it says you've come to the spirits of just men made perfect. And here's the best part. And to Jesus, the mediator of the New Testament or New Covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling, that is salvation through the blood of Christ, that speaketh better things than that of Abel. Remember Abel's blood when it was shed? What did God tell Cain? Your brother's blood cries out for vengeance. Christ, his blood speaks better things. His blood cries out for mercy. That's wonderful. In Philippians chapter 3, it says, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body, that it may be conformed to his glorious body, according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. It's his work. He's promised it. He's going to do it. 
Galatians chapter 4, verse 26, Paul wrote, said, But the Jerusalem which above is free, which is the mother of us all, that's to whom you belong. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul writes of the present tense, he says, Now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. Your fellow citizens with the saints, your citizens of heaven, even though you're presently in this world. In John 14, Jesus said, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. By the way, no one but God incarnate could say that without being blasphemous. Jesus says, You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. That's awesome. Jesus wants you to be with him. That's pretty good. Once you get to know who Jesus is, like, that gets more and more awesome. In Hebrews 13, 14, it says, For here we have no continuing city. We're pilgrims. For here we have no continuing city, but we seek one to come. John saw the beauty of the new Jerusalem prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. The full beauty of the redeemed church was displayed in this vision in righteousness and holiness and in love. In Isaiah 61, in the Old Testament, uh, verse 10, it says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God. For he hath clothed me with the garments of salvation. He hath covered me with the robe of righteousness. That's the righteousness of Christ. As a bridegroom decketh himself with ornaments, and as a bride adorneth herself with jewels. It's beautiful. Salvation is a beautiful thing. And it's what, notice that God's the one doing all the work here, guys. Uh, John chapter 3, we have the quote from John the Baptist when he says, He that hath the bride is the bridegroom. We belong to Jesus. Ephesians chapter 5, section dealing with husbands and wives, Paul says in verse 25, Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. Note, and this is that picture of the new Jerusalem, really, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. Note the purity and the beauty of redemption. In the Song of Songs, uh, chapter 4, verse 7, it says, Thou art all fair, my love. There is no spot in thee. You know, sometimes we say, oh, you know, talk to someone we love. You know, husband, we talk to your wife or wife, your husband, and they're maybe a little discouraged or depressed or sad. You say, oh, you know, I wish you could see yourself through my eyes because you're beautiful. You know, thou art all fair, my love. There is no spot in thee. That's Christ looking at the church because of his blood that took away our sins. He can say that. He sees no flaw in us. When Balaam went to curse Israel, he actually said, God sees no, no fault in them. Israel? All they're doing is complaining. God saw them in Christ. That is his redeemed ones. That's how God sees you. He sees you in Christ and he loves you. He's not ignorant of your struggles and your failures, but he loves you. And like sometimes it's really nice. I, I think I can say, 
On behalf of Christ, that's my duty here, I wish you could see yourself through the eyes of Jesus because you'd really be encouraged. You'd know your love. That's what he wants you to know. That's what this is all about, this passage we're looking at. In Hebrews 13, it says, For if the blood of goats and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling the unclean, sanctifieth to the purifying of the flesh, that is in the Mosaic administration, if you sprinkle blood, uh, people would be considered ceremonially clean, so you could have that outward cleansing and participate in the life of the church then in the tabernacle and temple. So if that sanctifies to the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge, that's kafarie in, in Greek, that means purified, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. The blood of Jesus is able to get the garbage out of your life right down to the very heart of hearts. He's able to sanctify you. He can get the places in your psyche that you don't even know about. And he's purging you and cleansing you. The blood of Jesus Christ is why we have this hope of heaven. In 1 John chapter 1, we read, If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we are lying and are not doing the truth. But if, now note that this is the fellowship of the church here. Note this is plural. This is the idea of a community of believers. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ his Son cleanseth, that is, is cleansing, present tense, the blood of Jesus Christ his Son is cleansing us from all sin. That's why it's so important to be in fellowship with the church. You know, it's like, oh, here's Pastor Starling. He's going to tell me I miss church again, blah, blah, blah. Look, I want to see you happy. I want to see you holy. Forsaking the assembling of yourselves is a sin. It's stupid in one sense to do that because you're cutting yourself off from spiritual growth and from the fellowship of the church and from having that ongoing application of the blood of Christ that happens in Christian fellowship. That's why we need to be right now. It's great to be in Sunday morning services, but having fellowship with each other during the week and things like that also. Making God's people your friends. That's really important. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his Son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. From this glorious city, here we see it on this side, if we confess our sins, that, that, that word, the Greek word, homologeo, it means to be open and honest before God. Not to be a hypocrite or lie, or try to redefine something we're doing that's wrong, but we're saying, well, it really wasn't a sin. Quit lying to yourself, okay? Because he says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just. He's faithful, you can trust him, he's just because it's based on the blood of Christ who took away your sins and paid for them. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You want to see your life improve? Start spending some time in prayer confessing your sins to Christ. Okay, that's why we don't have a regular confession. We don't have confessionals set up in, in the Christian church. Okay? Because confessing your sins to men, it can help you. That is, you know, you go for counseling or something. I'm not talking about the Roman confessional. But, you know, talking to each other, finding, hey, I'm having a real struggle. I'll pray for you, brother. Okay, nothing wrong with that. The Bible actually says confess your faults one to another. Okay, and pray for one another. But when it comes to actually confessing your sins to have the guilt forgiven and to be cleansed, you better go to Jesus and not a, not a man. Okay? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 
If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar. That's what we're calling God a liar. So you have to, when you say you don't have any sin, and actually the Greek is kind of, it's the perfect idea. You say you've never sinned, and you don't really have need for cleansing. You're calling God a liar. So you just sinned right there by saying that, all right? Uh, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Those who have been born again know that they're sinners, and sometimes they're very sad about it. The bride of Christ is glorious because she is cleansed from all sin by the precious blood of Christ and the bridegroom who loved her and gave himself for her to save her completely will never leave her nor forsake her. He is bound to her in love. Jesus is in love with his church. And he loved us enough to die for us. We are the bride of Christ. Praise God, Jesus is the groom. And I have a feeling that the Lord's looking forward to gathering us all into his presence. As you know, as it says in the book of uh, Jude, I end some sermons with this often. It says, Jude 24 and 25, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, not that he's able, he's also willing, but he's able to keep you from stumbling, and to present you faultless, before the presence of his glory, with exceeding joy. And I've said this before, I'll say it again. It's on both sides, not just your joy. That he shall see of the, of the travail of his soul and be satisfied. Jesus is going to be happy when you're there. Everything he worked for, all of his sufferings, all of his patience and work with you, when you stand before him in glory on that day, his heart is going to be filled with joy and you're going to see it. And, you know, I, I, I to see the smile of the Lord Jesus Christ, I can't think of anything that would be better. Particularly if he's looking at you. Okay. Jesus is going to look at you and smile because he loves you. He always has. He's loved you with an everlasting love. And here's whatever you're going through, it's well, the application very simple. It's going to be okay because your Savior loves you, whether in life or in death, you're in his hands. And you have eternal life. No, he says, he's able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy to God our Savior who alone is wise. He knows how to do this. Be glory and majesty, dominion and power both now and forever. Amen. It ends in praise and that's where we need to bring it to a halt today because we're out of time. Thank you for your patience. But we have a hope. We have a city. We have a home, and it's all because of the Lord Jesus Christ who loved us, loves us, died for us, cleanses us. He bought us with his blood. He calls us his bride. He takes unworthy rebels and makes them God's own sons and daughters. So praise God, beloved. I hope you can receive this and rejoice in it, and may it stay with you forever. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your Son, who saved us and is saving us and shall save us. And we thank you, Lord God Almighty, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that you are God, you created us, you redeemed us, we belong to you. Lord, seal your word to our hearts and minds. Encourage us. We pray, Lord, that this, this, the truth of these, this passage and these verses that we looked at, we pray that you'd so work in our hearts that when we're tempted because of our sins, that we would remember your promise and turn away from sin and turn to you. Help us, we pray, Lord. You're our strength. You're our only hope. We really want to be your people in truth, not just with words. 
And so we pray that you would work and have mercy on us and be glorified, we pray. And guide us, direct us in those good works that you've before ordained that we should walk in them. That we might be a peculiar people, a unique people, zealous of good works for your glory. And they come forth out of love. So help us, we pray. And this, Father, we ask in the name of our Savior, the groom of his bride, your son, our high priest, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen.